Welcome to Young Minds and Big Questions. Today on the podcast, we're talking miracles and Christopher Hitchens. Check it out. Yo, I ain't here for the money. I ain't here for the fame. Though it might be nice to own a jet plane. I'ma do it all for you. Come along and see it's true. But the world is pretty cold. You might need a sweater too. I'ma put a ride on ya. Came from California. Trying to make it. Welcome to Young Minds and Big Questions. So excited to be with you. My name's Jared. I'm Anthony. What's happening, people? Yeah, yeah. We're uh, we're excited to be back, and we got a, a special friend and guest with us. Eli Ayala is in the house. What's up, Eli? What's good? Maybe if you remembered Eli from last time, we were yelling at each other. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> one of our uh, one of our old podcasts where we screamed, and you may have thought, "Well, these guys are arch enemies." We are not. We are good friends. <laughs> and right. um, and today we're on the same team. He's here and uh, and helping us talk a little bit of apologetics. If you've not if you've not uh, checked out Eli's stuff, we want to encourage you to do that. Where can these guys find you? Well, I'm on Facebook, and I am now uh, working for the Historical Bible Society. Uh, you can check my articles out uh, at the historicalbiblesociety.org. You go to the top right corner; it says "Take 10 on the drop menu, and we do something what's called ten minutes ten minute apologetics, where we write really short articles addressing various apologetical issues. Um, and I will also be doing Facebook Live Q and A's and interviews with various uh, apologists and scholars and things like that. So um, look me up on uh, historicalbiblesociety.org and Historical Bible Society on Facebook. Awesome. I, I would definitely encourage you if you are interested in theology and apologetics, although you know we, we've had some differences in theology, he still is one of the sharpest guys I know um, best at answering questions and responses and really good at interacting with um, listeners and viewers, right? So um, I know you do a lot of that, people that have live questions, stuff like that. So check him out, Eli Ayala. You will not be disappointed. <laughs> they listen in like that was horrible <laughs> <laughs> and if you are disappointed you probably found the wrong Eli <laughs> that's my doppelganger yeah. he knows nothing <laughs> all right so today man we're excited today we're gonna uh we're gonna jump in do a little apologetics mm-hmm. we are mm-hmm. gonna play a clip um of the late great christopher hitchens yes. um we all love christopher here we do yeah we do he's, he's a uh, beautiful man beautiful man unfortunately passed away several years ago now but this is a debate he did with frank turk who's a uh more well known now than he was when this came out, uh, apologist, and uh, and we're gonna play it and talk a little bit about their arguments and uh, see what we think. All right, let's see how it goes. Let's do it. Check it out. And you should know before we start, we have not listened to this clip. Am I right, gentlemen? <laughs> yes, this is a cold. Is that true? A cold hearing. So I this haven't is a listened tr- to this it. This is a true. I test. watched the debate, which was a few years ago. Okay. So. All right. So we Anthony's just found this on cheated. YouTube. So yeah, we're gonna play it. You let's, haven't seen the debate. Though. I've never seen it. Okay. So let's see how well we respond. <laughs> do yourself okay. enough, do yourself and your faith the honor of saying it's faith. Don't no, 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 say no, no. it's no. science based. The argument you would won't be. won't get away with it. Look, the argument would be, Christopher, is that if the universe exploded into being out of nothing then miracles are possible because the greatest miracle of all has already occurred. The question is, have miracles occurred in the first century? That requires another debate whereby we have to look at the historical evidence and see. And if it is true that uh, that Jesus really did come and say and do the things that the New Testament writers said he did, then whatever he teaches is true because if he rose from the dead, he was God. If he taught that there will be an intervention, then there will be. That's the argument. I don't have time to support it. A sentence or two from David Hume on miracles would clear all this up. You'll need it. Okay. It's fallen off. That's one of them. 
A sentence or two from David Hume would, would correct what you said. A, a miracle is defined not as a part of the natural order, but as a suspension of the natural no, order. No, an you intervention. Can't, you, can't not say, a you can't say of, a, of the Big Bang, which is the foundation of the natural order, that it's a suspension of what it starts. You may not do that. However, if you meet someone in the street who you yesterday saw executed, you can say either that an extraordinary miracle has occurred or that you are under a very grave misapprehension. And David Hume's logic on this, I think, is quite irrefutable. He says, what is more likely, that the laws of nature have been suspended in your favor and in a way that you approve, or that you've made a mistake? And in each case, you must, and especially if you didn't see it yourself and you're hearing it from someone who says that they did. I would go further and say the following. I'll grant you that it would be possible to track the pregnancy of the woman Mary, who's mentioned about three times in the Bible, uh, and to show that there was no male intervention in her life at all. But yet she delivered herself of a healthy baby boy. I can say, I, I don't say that's impossible. Parthenogenesis is not completely unthinkable, but it does not prove that his paternity is divine. And it wouldn't prove that any of his moral teachings were thereby correct. Nor, if I was to see him executed one day and see him walking the streets the next, would that show that his father was God, or his mother was a virgin, or that his teachings were true? Especially given the commonplace nature of resurrection at that time and place. After all, Lazarus was raised, never said a word about it. The daughter of Jairus was raised, didn't say a thing about what she'd been through. Um, and the Gospels tell us that at the time of the crucifixion, all the graves in Jerusalem opened and their occupants wandered around the streets to greet. So it seems the resurrection was something of a banality at the time. Not all, not all of those people clearly were divinely conceived. So I'll, I'll give you all the miracles, and you'll still be left exactly where you are now, holding an empty sack. I think Mr. Hitchens has a good point there. If, uh, if you claiming the Big Bang is a miracle only because it is a rare event, it really gets down to the issue of how you define a miracle. Right, right. Um, I would be very careful using the word suspension of the laws of uh, nature. Frank Turk did say intervention. And I would be very careful using intervention only because I, my, in my, like from my understanding of what a miracle is, I define a miracle as a less common way of God's sovereign control so that God sustains all things. He, he doesn't create these laws that function on their own and that when he chooses, he just intervenes. I think that uh, the laws are the uh, regulatory behavior of nature because God is sustaining them and causing them to act in the ways that they do. So you have, for example, the laws of nature is the common way that God sustains the natural order. Miracles are the uncommon way, their uncommon providence, for example, that God is now, is now providentially controlling the natural order in such a way that he usually doesn't, so that when he does do it in that way, it's recognizable because it is, in, it is coinciding with, say, right. the, you know, a confirmation of a teaching or, or things like that. Yeah. So I think God is in control of the whole thing. It's just that he is in control of the miraculous in a slightly different way than he is when he is just normally providentially sustaining the natural order. Right. But I think what Frank is trying to say right at the beginning is if if something came from nothing, that logically means and points to some sort of a divine God or supernatural being, which means miracles wouldn't be out of the – they wouldn't be uh, – Ruled out. Ruled out. 
So, so Christopher Hitchens, he's he's kind of like it's almost like setting up the goalpost in a way that it's impossible for anyone to score because he's he's def- he's saying, look, I would be more likely to hallucinate than the laws of nature be broken. Like he sees the way that things normally and regularly occur, and, and they're never going to occur in a way that's different than what he sees. Right. So what what pro- do you do with someone like that? He there's nothing that you could give the him. The problem that- with that is that's only true if there is no God. Right. If you presuppose there's no God, then that argument makes sense. It's way more likely that I'm hallucinating or I'm on drugs or, you know, if I see someone executed like Jesus and three days later I see him alive, if there's no God, yeah, it's more likely that that's true. But that presupposes that there's no God. If there is a God, that's not necessarily more likely. When you say something is more probable already presupposes a whole host of things. You know, you know, it's what's the probability of a man being raised from the dead? Well, that depends. As William Lane Craig mentions, you have the background information. If background information includes the existence of God uh, and and things like that, that changes exactly that changes that changes all sorts of things. And um, uh, but what I do agree with with Christopher Hitchens is that even if you could demonstrate that Jesus was, uh, you know, born of a virgin, uh, that he did various miracles and he even raised the dead, that does not necessarily prove his divinity. And we have to be very careful to say that. Jesus is proven divine merely because he was raised from the dead. The resurrection itself means absolutely nothing without a theological context. And so I would be very cautious, and this gets into the issue of apologetic methodology, that um, we want to be careful with the, uh, uh, the piecemeal approach. That, well, I'm going to prove this over here, and we won't assume these other things. Let's prove this one over here first. We have to understand that our theology and the things that we're trying to prove in regards to the truth of Christianity are very closely and intricately connected with other things that are necessary components. A resurrection means nothing unless it's done within a, a wider worldview context with which we could interpret the the significance of the resurrection. Well, he pointed to Lazarus, you know, and he pointed right. to the other resurrections in the New Testament. He's like, so, you know, it seems like resurrection is commonplace. That didn't follow either. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Just because you have a couple of resurrections record, this is the problem. And people say, oh, the Bible's filled with, with miracles. You have to understand that miracles didn't always happen. And they, the Bible looks like it's filled with miracles because you have one book after the other and there are yeah. seasons. Most of the Bible is historical uh, narratives and explaining the, the story of people of Israel. And a lot of these things happen far and few between. But when they do happen, they are for the purpose of God revealing something and kind of, you know, uh, dem- a demonstration of his power for whatever kind of redemptive purpose. It's not this, there's just miracles in every page of the Bible and that, you know, it's a common place. It's not common. Well, to your point about Jesus' divinity, I think... Um, Talking about what William Lane Craig makes the point before the the idea not just that Jesus rose from the dead but that all of what he did before that right all the things that he did and said about himself um, so he says he's God he says this is what I'm going to do and then he actually backs it up um, I think all of those things um, point to his divinity so the beautiful thing about Christianity um, and we've talked about this before unique from any other religion is that it is falsifiable. And an important point too is not only do those other things that he did demonstrate his divinity, but they themselves don't demonstrate his divinity in and of themselves. The reason why those other previous actions have meaning is because there is a wider biblical commentary on that. It's because of what the Old Testament said Messiah would do. So we interpret the actions of Jesus with a an Old Testament biblical yeah. framework so that it's never with the actions of Jesus is never interpreted in a vacuum. Right. It is always couched within God's revelation from Genesis right. on. And so much of his miracles, so much of the things he taught can only really be understood through that framework right. of under understanding um, 
Judaism, first century Judaism, and their reading of the scriptures. And that's a that's a phenomenal point, which most people like Christopher Hitchens have no understanding of because they're they're biblically illiterate in, in a lot of ways. They haven't studied, yeah. and so they don't understand. To him, the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of Lazarus are on par. And right. you know, if, if you understand the religio-historical context of Christ's resurrection, it's not the same thing. That's a big word, Anthony. Uh, I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> That's for all the ladies trying to show off. <laughs> what do you guys think are some of the implications of Hitchens' worldview and talking about Things like ordinary, things like the laws of logic, um, things like the uh, the constants of the universe, which are all things that we would measure, right? What's ordinary? What are some of the implications of his worldview if there is no God? And the problem with that worldview and making sense of all of these things? Well, I think when you talk about what's ordinary, you're also dealing with the issue of regularity and the regularity that you observe, which deals with the issue of the uniformity of nature. Now, if anyone studies the history of philosophy, you know that uh, uh, uniformity, the assumption of the uniformity of nature is based off induction. And induction is very problematic. David Hume, if you quoted David Hume, David Hume pointed this out, um, that uh, you cannot know, you cannot say with certainty that the future will be like the past merely because it's always been that way in the past. Now, some people say, well, this is just a moot point. It's unimportant. It's not unimportant. Uh, I mean, if, if your worldview does not give you a justification for assuming the future will be like the past, um, then you are proceeding without warrant on the assumption of the regularity of nature. For all we know, the future will not be like the past. You can't say, well, it's always been this way, and so therefore it's going to be that way in the future. That's a logical fallacy. Um, you, You need to have a worldview that can account for regularity, a worldview that makes sense out of our experience of yeah, regularity. Right, right. Um, what yeah. Christopher Hitchens is doing is he's assuming regularity, making that his standard in evaluating yeah. whether a miracle is possible, uh, while all the while ignorant of the fact that regularity does not make sense in a worldview that is random, that has no purpose, right. and for all we know right. could act in any which way That's possible. And if he says, well, wait a minute, they don't act any way which possible because certain properties have certain characteristics that they just act a certain way. Well, that presupposes the regularity and the uniformity of nature, which just begs the question. You assume the uniformity of nature to prove that your nature is uniform. And that's circular reasoning. He quotes Einstein on this, and he says, the universe is as it is, and it doesn't change. That's the miracle in the universe. It is the way it is. You know, and and that is a presupposition. Huge presupposition. So if we've we've got listeners who are not believers in, in God, and they're looking out and listening to you guys' arguments, and they're saying, well, I don't understand why does... The fact that I believe that there are things in constants, there are I believe that there are constants in the universe. Why does that necessitate that there must be a God? Well, then why I would ask, for example, and we would ask this of anybody: if you believe something, what is your justification for that belief? If you're asking me what is my justification for belief in God, I would assume you want an answer as to why I believe it, and I have the right to ask you philosophically: what is your justification for believing in the regularity of nature? And what's the answer going to be? Well, it's always been that way. Oh, that doesn't prove that it will always be that way in the past. What is? Well, give me your worldview. You give me the foundations of your worldview. Why, how do you make sense out of regularity? And without a God who's created a universe in order, there is no basis. And this is not just from a Christian perspective. This has been a problem pointed out by Bertrand Russell, David Hume, and a lot of other non-Christian philosophers. There is a genuine problem of induction that needs to be answered. Otherwise, you're just assuming it blindly. 
Um, so I think, you know, why should we point these things out? Because just as the atheist would demand of the Christian, you need a justification for your beliefs and your worldview needs to be able to account for those things. So what's wrong with the atheist um, remaining agnostic on the subject? I don't know if tomorrow... Just, the- just pleading ignorance. Like maybe, well, we just don't know. Maybe we'll discover, but that's no reason to believe in God. Uh, well, I mean, even to say the sentence presupposes the thing that we're not sure about. How do we know that 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 what the words that you're saying mean the same thing when you say them? <laughs> you, you have to assume the thing and say, well, we don't know about it. But the very sentence you speak presupposes those unif- that uniformity. Um, so you can say you don't know uh, that that just makes every argument and every skeptical argument that you would pose against the Christian really irrelevant because argument itself presupposes uniformity. You have to assume uniformity to even dem- to even express your agnostic in regards to uniformity. So you're saying, what you're saying is there are laws that govern everything and you're asking the non-believer or the atheist or the agnostic, where do you ground those laws in your worldview? I would say that God grounds, God grounds those laws and creates a universe that is predictable and behaves in a certain way and within that theistic framework, it makes sense to say the future will be like the past. Right. Your regularity and uniformity is normal within the theistic universe. Now, I'm going to be a nitpicker and not let the atheist take uniformity for granted. And I want to say at the foundations of your world, you know, your understanding of the universe, how do you make sense out of this regularity? Because if you can't, and it's just a blind faith commitment, then you have to be careful because every argument you make in favor of everything will presuppose that very skeptical foundation. So why does any of your arguments in the future have any merit when you're not even sure of the truth of your foundation? Yeah. And this is the important in, importance of presuppositional apologetics, whether one uh, favors one method over the other. The real issue is that it bypasses all of this side discussion of evidence here, evidence there, and gets to the very foundation of where the issues really lie. Because you can give me fancy arguments after argument, but if your worldview foundation, the, the very foundation upon which you build all your other arguments is faulty, then it doesn't matter how eloquent you sound. Your foundations can't even account for the argument you're trying to you know, hold up. And so that's yeah. why I think it, these foundational issues are important. Is this is this similar, guys, to, um, to when atheists attack the existence of God based on morality? And they say... Well, God couldn't exist because look at all the evil atrocities that he does in the Old Testament. Look how bad it is. So they use objective morality to try to say God can't exist, but yet if there is no God, there's no basis for believing in objective morality. Is it a similar type of argument, yet you're talking about um, the laws of logic? The laws of nature. In the laws of nature. I would say that, first of all, the atheist presupposes the uniformity of nature. He can't account for it, and he'll use the uniformity of nature to, to make arguments miracles. against your your yeah. position, whether right. it's miracles. Yeah. When you deal with issues of morality, not only is he also presupposing uniformity because argumentation presupposes uniformity, right? He's also now presupposing an ultimate standard of, of by which we could measure what's good and evil. So that's another instance of him borrowing from something that only makes sense out of your world. He will borrow it and then use right. it against you. Um, and this is why um, Van Til, uh, who is the father of presuppositional apologetics, he says that anti-theism presupposes theism. In order to make an anti-theistic argument, you have to presuppose things that only make sense in, in the a theistic, theistic universe. Yeah. Um, so I would think morality is just another thing. You could just move on from morality. Uh, morality presupposes uh, logic. And the sentences you use to frame your arguments presuppose logic. And so as an atheist, and, and even worse off, if you're a metaphysical naturalist, how do you uh, ground the objective laws of logic that are conceptual, that they're abstract, 
um, yet the universe that we live in is purely matter and motion. Oh, they're just relative. The laws of logic are just relative. And that's right. And then I would I would openly contradict that person to see how consistent they would be. Yeah. You know, someone says, "Well, I don't believe in logic," and I just like, "Well, sure you do." Well, no, I don't. No, yeah, you do. No, no, I don't. Uh, yes, you do. And eventually, he's going to get annoyed, and then I'm going to point out to the fact, "Why are you getting annoyed?" I thought they're subjective. In my logic, you do believe in logic. <laughs> you see, if he disagrees with me, it's because he obviously recognizes the inherent contradiction. I'm contradicting yeah. his statement. If contradictions are valid, then he shouldn't have a problem when I contradict them. So is this really a, is this really about objective truth that there's certain things that are true objectively yeah, and are like the laws of logic and are false objectively? Obje- in other words, logic is an objective truth, and to deny the existence or deny the reality of objective logic, you a- actually prove it. And I think as Aristotle pointed out, that log- logic is true um, uh, transcendentally. And when you talk about transcendental, tr- uh, transcendental truth or proof, something that is transcendentally true is true by the impossibility of the contrary. To deny it is to affirm it, like truth. Truth is transcendentally true. Why, how do I know there is truth? Because to deny truth is to affirm truth. What do you mean by transcendental in case some are not yeah. quite sure? Transcendental deals with, uh, uh, you know... Uh, the impossibility of the contrary being true. So transcend- So when you talk about, like, say, for example, the uh, transcendental nature of the laws of logic, it is so true that logic holds that to deny it is to affirm it. Right. And so it, it, it is uh, true by necessity. Um, if you want to use philosophical terms, there is no world, no possible world in which logic doesn't ex- is not true. And I would argue because God exists in every possible world, we won't get into the ontological argument. And then God, of course, we believe is the spiritual being that grounds logical conceptual laws. So what if I was going to say that, listen, all right, in our space-time continuum, in our part of the cosmos, uh, this is how the laws of logic operate. But how do we know that they op- don't operate differently in another part of the universe or in another universe? Yeah, I think the problem there is that you're grounding the, the nature of the laws of logic in the physical universe. Now, logic has nothing to do with the physical universe. Logic it transcends the physical universe. So it's not uh, logic is not grounded in, in a place. Our spa- in a place. Yeah. Right. It is it. Tra- when we talk about that, the laws of logic are transcendent. That means their 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 ground is beyond the physical universe. Um, you know, and that's that's what logic is. If if unless you want to ground logic in the physical universe, and then you then in that case, logic wouldn't be universal. Yeah. But if be- logic is not universal, then I can contradict you at any point. Well, it's universal here. Well, how do you know that? You've <laughs> you know, stepped into irrationality. Exactly, you stepped into any sort of rationality conversation, right. and it really is. It really is probably the height of silliness when I see people uh, deny the objective objectivity of the laws of logic. Yeah. It's it's silly. Even if I wasn't a Christian and believed these things were grounded in God, it doesn't make sense. It just, it it's not that it doesn't make sense. It's logically incoherent right. and thereby false to deny yeah. logic. You have it, it's the nature of the case. You have to affirm it to even to deny yeah. it. So we've critiqued Christopher Hitchens' grounding for his claims against the miracles in Scripture. We've talked about how his arguments are contingent upon induction and contingent upon the laws of logic. And we've spoken about how those things really don't make sense in an atheistic framework. The laws of logic and the uniformity of nature don't have any grounding in a naturalistic atheistic framework. Now, I would like to go and talk about um, the resurrection a little bit more, because that was one of his major critiques. He seemed to suggest that resurrection was commonplace, that resurrections happen all the time. Going back to that critique, I know I already mentioned the context in which Christ's resurrection happened, being that resurrections always seem to happen in the New Testament. 
what makes Jesus's resurrection unique? Does he realize also that the nature of Jesus' resurrection is fundamentally different than raising of the little girl in the Gospel of Luke and Lazarus? They were raised to life only to die again. Jesus is called the first fruits right, of the resurrection; right. is the only person ever to resurrect with a glorified body. Yeah. Um, so it's not it's not the same in that sense. Uh, but I don't I don't even see how relevant the other resurrections are. He, he kind of I mean, wanted to downplay the whole notion that this is even possible. It seems like they think everything is, uh, you know, a miracle. Like, he kind of seemed to downplay the whole... I don't see how that's even yeah. connected. Okay, Jesus raised other people to life. How does that make his own resurrection less... Right. If, if anything, that would point to his deity right. more than detract from it. Because right. he's the one who was the cause. He's, he's the cause of, of them being right. raised and, from and the dead. And he also made mention of establishing, you know, the evidence for... Uh, uh, the virgin birth or right, something like right, that. Right. I, I hope he doesn't think that, uh, or I hope he didn't think that the Christians claim that we could, we have evidence for literally every miracle. Right. We have evidence for the, the important one right. that has redemptive significance. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, I don't, you know, I would never claim to historically demonstrate that Jesus turned water into wine. Yeah. I mean that we don't have quote, evidence for that what we have is evidence of the resurrection and the christian worldview and if that's true then you know what the wine is just fall. an extension yeah. that gets right and evidence exactly. that yeah. the gospels are trustworthy and yeah. and things of that nature yeah i think that's a great point and and the validity of christianity doesn't rise and fall on proving that jesus uh, was born of a virgin mary um, in a miraculous way. It doesn't rise and fall on us proving that, right? It it rises and falls on the resurrection. And to your point, there is a lot of sufficient evidence that that actually did happen, which I think is And, is and, and I, even in Christopher Hitchens' debates with William and Craig and Frank Turk, he didn't do a very good job. He's not a historian. I don't, he's not a historian, but he just didn't do a great job at responding to the arguments that were presented to him. You know, he was very much a, almost like a Jesus mythicist. He, he, didn't, he wasn't really sure whether Jesus existed or not. He argued against it. So it seems like he really wasn't in touch with the his, historians on that issue. But um, Well, guys, any last thoughts? After you've destroyed Christopher? I don't destroy him. No one could destroy him. His legend will live on forever in our hearts. That's heresy. I always knew you were soft on atheism. <laughs> <laughs> I love Christopher Hitchens. He's the best. Now we like him, mostly for his accent. I think Jesus is the best. But <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. Molinist. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just you, kidding. You Molinist. You. you. Always watering down Molinist. things with your philosophy. <laughs> well, Eli, around. man, thanks for being on. We, we appreciate your, uh, oh, this your is help fun, and your thoughts. and. And uh, look forward to having you on again cool. in the future. Definitely. For serious, bro. I, I love Guys, to, uh, check also, them out. Also, just one more thing. Uh, just kind of a quick plug. Uh, I'm still wait, getting waiting for uh, the thumbs up, but on the first week of June on the Historical Bible Society Facebook page, I will be interviewing uh, Ken Samples from Sweet. Reasons to Believe, I believe. Awesome. That's what the name is. Uh, we'll talk about his new book and maybe uh, mix in a bunch of other Bible theological questions and things like that. So yeah. if anyone's interested, um, I will uh, throw out another reminder, Historical Bible Society on Facebook. Check us out. And uh, that's it. Sweet. Awesome. Sweet. Ken Samples is a smart man. Thanks, guys. I would encourage you. Check it out. We uh, we appreciate you. This is... Uh, this is Young Minds Big Questions. We're so glad you listened. Hey, check us out on Twitter, YMBQ Podcast. Also on Facebook, Young Minds Big Questions. Or you can email us your questions or your thoughts. YoungMindsBigQuestions at gmail.com. We thank you. We'll see you next time. Peace.